Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. Welcome back to the show. This is Tony Katz today. I'm Ethan Hatcher, joined by Tony Kinnett. Together, we're filling in with producer Jason. It's it's like the same TK, but just lower case, you know. And this is the big EH because I'm the only one, so that works. Yeah, that's true. Um, Thanks for... You were talking about Jason pushing those buttons and making everything happen. I just happened to cut you off every time that you come in saying that. Sorry about that. It's okay. He he knows uh, how valuable he is to the production of the show, and we appreciate your hard work, Jason. All right, let's dive into a bunch of drama that's currently unfolding at Hamilton Southeastern Schools. Oh, More yeah. criticism being levied at the district for the surprise resignation of its superintendent, Yvonne Stokes, who I understand there's been some criticism about and also um, defense from the community, including a uh, lawyer by the name of Jamie Cairns, who blames uh, the school district for not giving her a chance. This is something that I understand you have a thing or two to say about uh, Tony Kinnett. Let's get into her thoughts where she was uh, interviewing um, and kind of answering. Before you you play the audio from from Jamie, because you do want to give her that that time. Uh, I want to point out, first of all, what happened. So Dr. Yvonne Stokes uh, resigned. So she filed her letter of resignation. It's available for everyone to read. Uh, she was given a severance payment the, to finalize her health care and benefits through the end of the academic year and also her salary, which is $180,000. So she wow. was paid off and resigned, which is totally different from A, being forced out or fired or B, resigning of your own accord and just walking away and saying i'm out guys see ya so very different so that's the stage that is set now i think we're ready i expect the separation agreement which of course we haven't seen yet to give her some money and have an agreement in it that she won't sue the school corporation and i think if those two things are included in the separation agreement that tells us that this isn't her quitting the job there was too much drama in hsc since 2021 for her to have any chance of being liked or not liked or to do anything at least one person commented on facebook in favor of the resignation sergio camarera said good clean house Okay, now that's he, that's the only person they could find to like there are again, there are journalists and, and did you find out was that from WTHR? Yes, I believe so. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. WTHR. So Channel 13, instead of actually contacting the number, any number of officials in Indiana who would respond to Stokes uh, being canned or resigning or being forced out or whatever they found a Facebook commenter, not biased at all. Now, you called her the ultimate lawsuit liability, but Jamie Cairns was saying she received the payoff as a means to avoid suing the school. So what? who's in the wrong here? So two things can be true at once. Uh, First of all, it's very important to note that Jamie Cairns runs an account called HS Equal. It's an equity-focused activist group for Hamilton Southeastern that campaigned very heavily against certain school board members while maintaining uh, support for basically trying to elect to the school board members, active members of the Democrat party in in the county. So just to note who she is in the first place. So 
making sure that there's no one in the situation who is unbiased, as I am not unbiased either. I am biased. Every single individual on earth is biased. When you're looking at the situation, you need to consider the facts of what happened. She resigned and she was paid off for it. Now, I have been part of an agreement before where this happened, and this is a very common occurrence, as I was telling Rob Kent a little bit earlier today. When someone gets a payment and then resigns, it is an agreement between the two entities to play nice. So there might be something in this agreement. Jamie's correct that says uh, you agree not to sue the district. Um, there's most likely going to just be an NDA between the two parties, a non-disclosure agreement, which says, I'm going to leave you alone. You are going to leave me alone. And here's why. What a lot of people do not know, and if you talk to a lot of staff from Hamilton Southeastern, as I have over the last couple of days, a lot of those staff will tell you that Dr. Stokes was absolutely obsessed with race. And over the last couple of years, would walk into classrooms, would invite people to her office and berate them for things like white privilege. Uh, reportedly, she told one black staff member they weren't, and I quote, black enough, end quote, and also told a Hispanic staff member Whoa. that looked white about their white privilege, which is, again, very wild. I hate to break it to all of the race nationalists out there, uh, but just because you look white does not mean that your heritage is from Western Europe. Okay, walk me through this, Tony, because I am not familiar with the ins and outs of this story, and I understand you've done a little bit of groundwork here communicating with parents and kind of evaluating the situation at large. Why is she getting the payoff if she's the legal liability here? How does that equate to, I mean, if you're allegedly harassing people on a racial basis, how does that equate to you being paid off and quietly shuffled out the door. Right. So so the, the the way that perhaps the progressives would respond to that as they have when I've made these claims is, well, then why wasn't she just fired? You know, you're claiming right. that therefore she was fired with cause. No. And I very explicitly stated Jamie Carnes, for example, got on the Internet through the HS Equal account on Twitter and accused me of saying she was fired with cause. And, and that's not how this works. Although when I was on Hammer and Nigel, the segment that she was describing, I specifically stated she was not fired with cause. Play that real D quick just to, yeah, uh, was... just to line this up so that we can verify that exactly what I said. We've been in national headlines enough. And so it's likely here because she wasn't fired with cause. They didn't fire Dr. Stokes. She chose to resign that basically Dr. Stokes takes her little severance pay. The district gets rid of this incredible liability and both parties go their separate okay, ways. So okay, this so, so here's why this matters and here's how we can point to the fact that she was paid off even though she was the liability. There was, and we are aware of this, we're currently in the process of obtaining this, there was an investigation and report done to Dr. St or on Dr. Stokes when Julie Chambers, uh, who's a, a lawyer in, in that area, uh, was running that school board. And in that instance, this investigation was looking into Stokes' racial harassing of staff. And after that investigation, a report was completed uh, Chambers basically boxed it up and said, we're done talking about this. They didn't release the findings. They didn't do anything. So that leaves an open box on an investigation. Now, since the new school board, the more conservative oriented school board has taken over, they've hired a new law firm. Church Hiddle and Antrim is no longer in charge over there for law firm related in uh, uh, law firm related interests and abilities. Now they have a different law firm. Whenever you hire a new law firm or a new accounting firm or whoever else that is managing something relating to your books, your dirty the laundry. very first thing that organization does is they look for any boxes that are still open and have not been dealt with. This is a corporate concept that is a tale as old as time. And the beauty and the beast of this is that Dr. Stokes has that un or has that remaining open box of this investigation that was never finalized, which puts you in this position. They have to 
address this at some point because there have been the microaggressions national scandal uh, again other racial scandals regarding this school there's also some questions regarding the individual uh, Ben Yoder who was an orchestra teacher in the district that was sending uh, very weird disturbing texts to minors asking if they wanted to go get in trouble somewhere and all other kinds of weird nonsense and again Stokes kind of heading over those at the time now this new law firm and this board are being pressured to looking into those. So here's where this all boils down. This is the final point, And this is where I begin speculating. I believe that what happened here is that Stokes was presented with the idea that we can start reopening these investigations and we can start digging through all of the stuff that you're going through. And we can really finally take a good look at you and do it in the public eye. Or you can take this little bit of a severance pay. It'll be a lot cheaper for the district because this investigation would be very expensive. It would be right in the public and it would like never end. Or we can kind of both cut our losses. We don't like you. You don't like me. And we both go our separate ways and sign NDAs. That happens all the time, especially in the journalist world and in the education world as well. So in light of all this potential scandal perhaps being averted as a result of this settlement um, and and uh, uh, resignation, um, it seems like the school board would be desperate for stability and normalcy and leadership. And they've uh, supposedly been poised to name Matt Kegley, assistant superintendent uh, for teaching and learning as leader of the district. Would this solve problems, Tony Kennett, or would it create more of them? It depends what you mean by solving problems. Uh, and, are, we, and- are we going to be at risk for more uh, racial harassment, potentially? Well, I've, I've certainly never heard of, of anything regarding him and, and racial harassment. He's a very competent individual from, from the staff that I've spoken to about this and the guy, obviously, at the moment that's the interim replacement for her. Um, as far as Dr. Wokes, excuse me, Dr. Stokes ah! is concerned, uh, she had a lot of weird community ties to a, a racial equity group that said a lot of really disturbing and, and racially egregious things about anyone who is not black. Uh, there's a lot of other weird things that Dr. Stokes is tied to. Uh, just a, a lot of things that I'm not mentioning on the air because they are more speculative from staff members that haven't been there as long. A lot of rumors and, and really disturbing things like that. This really is the best case for everyone. And I, I do mean that there's never going to be a situation in which this board is free from controversy because it's a populated district with a conservative majority school board. And the left has made it very clear that they are going to push back at every single instance, no matter what. And so the board is, from what I can gather, trying to accomplish the goals that they were elected to while minimizing the national scandals involved. It, it takes a lot of work to clean up a school system. And it, Sounds so far, like it looks kind of hit and miss. It under the rug and make the problem go away. In a, in a, in a way that in, base, in a, best case scenario, it's a less expensive way. Okay. Because all right, yeah. so let's 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 hype, let's get a hypothetical here. Let's say that you open up these investigations and you you dig into Doctor Stokes and all of this. Well, now a lot of things are out of your hands, and people on the left are known for doing weird backflips over barriers and and kind of regulations, and then watch them be stuck with Doctor Stokes forever, paying her a small retaliatory settlement and doing a bunch of stuff that's going to cost the district a ton of money in investigations and independent this and all other kinds of nonsense, rather than just it's a third. $32 million ish annual budget district, pay the 180 grand and then be done with her forever. It, I'm just saying, from my perspective, that makes a lot of sense. But it does highlight the danger of doing a dance with the devil and appeasing these woke crew and installing them in the upper echelon of management anywhere, but particularly in school. And well, that's we, not the board's fault, though. We. <laughs> 
No, I'm just being honest. I mean, that's not if if we're going to get into that, then we're going to get into where they come from and and the kind of monopoly that individuals who get into the superintendent licensure space have and the limited number of candidates and how they're appointed and that kind of infrastructure. Well, I was going to connect it with another conversation of uh, racial inequity being accused of in Washington Township schools and local parent uh, parent group uh, basically clamoring for the incorporation of more diversity, equity and inclusion. Ah, Washington Township might not be what you're looking for when it comes to Hamilton Southeastern and drawing a comparison there. Washington Township is a uh, particularly violent district. I'm interested to hear what you got. Hit me. Um, This is a case where there appears to be a large um, educational achievement gap. Uh, According to the Department of Education, 18.6% of Hispanic students and 20% of black students in Washington Township are proficient in the English language arts, whereas white counterparts are about 68% uh, proficient. And in math, 17% of Hispanic students and 13% of black students are proficient, whereas the white counterparts are 60.9% proficient. And the concerned residents of Washington Township are essentially ascribing this to a problem of the uh, 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 of the teachers um, for being, I, I suppose, racist. And this was uh, the report. To help close the gap, members of the group concerned residents of Washington Township are asking school board members to step up and hold educators accountable. The belief of the group is that all kids deserve access to an excellent education. Race and income should not be barriers to achievement, uh, whether it's achieving success in school or achieving long-term success. Um, And they're concerned. And they want to see the school system truly committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Okay, so So we're going to avoid the buzzwords, and I want to address that that middle claim, which is that all students deserve equal opportunity for educational resources, regardless of, of of race or economic status or whatever. Okay, so I would like you to point out, those of you that are in Washington Township, I would like you to put a black student next to a white student and tell me what services the school is providing to the white student and not the black student. Because if you cannot point any physical meaning, and don't say, well, when the white student walks into class, the teacher smiles, and when the black student walks into class, the teacher's like, oh, that black student. That doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. Washington Township is overwhelmingly progressive, and individuals who more often than not factor in uh, worrying about what color a student or a student's color is impacting their academic performance. And by the way, I would like to point out for schools that would like to emulate Indianapolis public schools that since they have launched their racial equity initiatives, there has not been any increase of black and Hispanic scores or academic performance. So they've instituted all this equity stuff that's supposed to help black and Hispanic students. But shocker, the kids still can't read. So, so what is it doing other than wasting money and, and stepping on people's rights? Nothing. It's doing nothing. So all the, oh, well, we need to start focusing on the black and Hispanic students. Well, what have we been doing? Show me where we have been focusing right. on something else. Because from what I can see, the school system just sucks. That's, that's just what I'm, it's, it's mismanaged. The teachers aren't allowed to teach. So we're going to take more of their power away to teach. That's going to solve it. It's never worked once. Why are we still doing this crap? Definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. Or we've pretending pursu- to the public as though you're doing something different. Well, we've been pursuing these leftist policies for now more than a decade, and it's not resulting in more equity, which is supposedly their stated goal. If anything, it's widening the gap. Thanks for listening to Tony Katz today. We've gone a little bit long. Ethan Hatcher and Tony Kinnett filling in more conversation on the way. <laughs>
as if we didn't already live in a frightening dystopia enough, now tech companies are introducing predictive AI for crime. So basically, the minority report. I was going to say, isn't, haven't yeah. we already covered this kind of a thing in like all All movies? science fiction? Literally, we've been here before, Tony. This is uh what's where where'd my sound go? Isn't this the uh the plot of uh, the uh event or no Captain America the Winter Soldier, right? Like they're gonna do this predictive AI and they have the floating helicarriers that are gonna shoot all of the Americans. Did you see Captain America the I Winter did. Soldier? I mean, we've really covered this time and time and time again, and and we're gonna just throw it out. We don't even have AI that can master spelling. <laughs> Tell me about this. Uh, I, I, I got to hear about this. It's one. all uh, some of the uh, biggest police departments in America, uh, New York City and Los Angeles police departments are contracting with Voyager Labs, which is this uh, uh, surveillance technology group. And they say they can use social media analytics tools to aid personnel in uncovering information relevant to investigations, addressing public safety concerns, Concerns, as well as predicting where future crimes might take place. The investigation half, I'm fine with. Yeah. The future crime, I'm not okay with. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I was going to point out. I don't, you know, if there's, let's say, a million emails to sort through, and you have some kind of AI software that is going to look through those emails and find predictive imagery. We're doing that with FOIA requests right now. As one of my assignments at work is trying to in- encourage certain AI techniques in order to sort through millions of emails at a time, which really, I mean, there's there's a district out in Virginia that had 1.3 million emails using the word equity from 2020 to 2022. So I'm using AI to sort through that. But predictive stuff, that's weird because prediction requires creativity. Prediction requires external programming input, which means you have to tell the computer what kind of behavior is good and what kind of behavior is bad and what kind of behavior triggers a response. And uh, who's doing the coding for that? I'm so glad you mentioned that because those were among the concerns by the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project, otherwise known as STOP, who say this is basically Uh, stop and frisk policy uh, 2.0 that unfairly and iniquitously uh, targets African-American and Latino minority groups. Inequitably. Yeah. Yeah, all the the fun words. So they're 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 good and bad with this. And we again we have to once again parse the line between um, authoritative measures of statistics and libertarian freedom from statistics. So no, I mean it's important. It, I'm not I'm not mocking libertarians with that. It's a it's a true debate that has to be made because again, if you start saying, well, it is it is more likely in this situation if we're in this part of town that we're going to see more crime. So therefore, we're going to send more police to patrol in that part of town. That's predictive. It is. That is that is going where the problem is based on predictive factors. And then there's the libertarian angle, which is okay, but if you start basically saying these individuals are more likely and then they usually apply it to race or they apply it to sex or they apply it to profile right you're creating a profile and you end up being the the cops that hide outside of gated fancy communities catching speeders at the end of the month to meet their quota right so there's there's both sides to this and we're trying to find a balance between the two the the real secret here is you're never going to find a balance between the two there's no such thing as a balance between predictive and reactive law enforcement um there's the idealistic world that both sides of that argument portray that just doesn't happen because people are fallible. 
And I, I don't think that AI is any better to solve this problem because they're like, well, we'll, we'll let the universal world of the unbiased computer decide. Well, no. But it's not the unbiased computer. There's no such thing the, as an unbiased the computer. computer carries the biases right. of the programmer a computer who made it. Cannot, you cannot naturally engender creativity. You cannot spontaneously in, engender that kind of a response. So, yeah, this is silly. This is stupid. No, we don't want AI predictive crime research. Oh, dear Lord. Aiding investigation, good. Predicting future crime, bad. I think we can leave it there. Thanks right. for listening to Tony Katz today. Ethan Hatcher and Tony Kinnett filling in. Welcome back to Tony Katz Today. I'm Tony Kinnett. Same kind of TK, just lowercase. Joining me is Ethan Hatcher over on the other mic. Of course, Jason on the board making things happen. Ethan, you know, I'm on social media way too much. And when it comes to Twitter, the most glorious dumpster fire of all time, or the Facebook, which is uh, the dumpster fire for boomers, you look at a lot of the, the criticisms that people throw out. And it's amazing how after some kind of a scandal, everyone immediately becomes a legal expert and a lawyer. And they start saying that anything and everything is some kind of a crime. Case in point. So I've talked a lot about Dr. Stokes and Hamilton Southeastern. And one of the things that I've been levied with is that apparently by talking about Dr. Stokes and talking about conversations that I have had on the air uh, about Dr. Stokes and my claiming, for example, that she is a horrible person, that means that I have committed defamation. Yeah, that's not defamation. That's not no. how that works. So to, to review with everyone who has uh, actually gone through a seventh grade civics class, defamation is when you knowingly say something or libel. Those are situations in which you knowingly say, knowingly say things about a person that you know are not true. Those do not cover... Those do not cover my opinion. So when I say she is a horrible person, that is because the experience that I have had and listening to her speak and reading her policies and watching her at school board meetings and talking to staff that have served under her constitutes for me a picture that she is, in fact, you guessed it, a horrible person. And I'm glad to see her gone from the district. Now, I want to make this clear. This is why journalists use the term allegedly or it is reported, or it is said when describing specific actions. So for example, there is a progressive in Indianapolis by the name of Brian Pauley, who on social media claimed that a, a county council member was a, uh, a sexual assaulter and, and basically went on about how this guy was a big sexual assaulter and you know he, he did all of these crimes. Only, fun fact, uh, the councilman did not commit any of those crimes. Uh -oh. That is that is defamation. That is defamation. Actually, so, isn't it libel too if he printed is, it? That is true, and he did print it, so <laughs> it's libel, and he had to take those down and has since deleted his Twitter account, and that Oops. lawsuit is ongoing. So those are the differences. So just to clarify for everyone out there that if I look at someone who is doing something or saying something stupid, and then I call them stupid, that's not defamation, and uh, it doesn't exactly take a, a high-level genius to say that. You know what else it doesn't take a high-level genius not to do, Ethan? Tell us. High-level geniuses don't claim that they can build railroads 
across the African continent as like a central part of American policy. Guess what, guys? This next, this next section where we're going to rip apart the dementia-in-chief commander, um, that's not defamation either. Ethan, tell us a little bit about Biden's latest gaffe. Well, Joe Biden, he was making an appearance in Vietnam and decided to promote his plan to build a train across the continent of Africa. You'll hear soon that trains are kind of a thing with Joe Biden. He's proposed a number of rail lines, some more feasible than others, but this, of course, would be a gargantuan undertaking, to say the least. I mean, bringing a 19th century technology to a 21st century uh, country, okay, it's do- it's doable, if not enormously expensive, but here it is, the proposal from Joe Biden. For example, you know, one of the things we're doing in terms of, uh, I-, I proposed a long time ago the G7, now it's going to come to fruition in the G20 is making sure that we build a railroad all the way across the African continent. Think about it. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for them. Across the entire continent. This isn't the first time that our uh, illustrious president has announced that he has plans to uh, play railroad tycoon. Uh, of course, he announced just a short while ago, I believe under three months ago, that he announced that the United States has plans to build a railroad from the Pacific all the way across the Indian Ocean, yeah. whatever that means. This was in June. Well, we're going to win and we're going to help. We have plans to build a railroad from the Pacific all the way across the Indian Ocean. We have plans to build in, 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 in Angola, one of the largest solar plants in the world. I can go on, but I'm not. I'm going off script. I'm going to get in trouble. Yesterday, I learned the difference between a train and a boat. I wrote this song before that. Train on the water, boat on the track. Train on the water, boat on the track. My lady took a train across the Atlantic. I hope it don't Okay, so uh, uh, a few things to, to point out here. And I'll even say something that breaks with perhaps the, the normal Republican tradition of... Uh, you know, flipping off the the railroad system in the United States, which is that I'm actually for redoing a lot of the railroad systems in in the country. Uh, I think that they are a very reliable way to move freight. Yeah, and I think that we should be shoring up well, and they expanding used to be before Pete Buttigieg and the train started falling off the tracks. Right. But, you know, I, I think on. that there is uh, there was a really interesting report that was made a couple of of years ago uh, by a, a, a kind of a venture investment team that suggested that the further that nuclear technology was able to progress, we would be able to build very safe reactors that basically operated at the size of a large diesel locomotive, which would basically make freight uh, transport in the United States exceptionally cheap, like ridiculously cheap and very safe. That would require, though, upgrading a lot of the rail infrastructure of the country. I'm also in favor of the Hyperloop idea that underground we build large, somewhat vacuum-sealed Hyperloop uh, train sections that link major cities. I think those things are cool. I I was also the weirdo who suggested that during the 2015 Super Bowl that Indianapolis, instead of the Red Bus Line, looked at kind of expanding the monorail system or an L-train system. you and I are of a similar mind on that. See, I knew we'd find something someday. But putting all that aside, it, as cool as, as trains are to, to reach into the to the small guy who well, likes trains. Well, you mentioned the monorail, so I'm going to pitch my idea because I've been on this for years and Rob Kendall makes fun of me endlessly. But I think if we're going to try any kind of mass transit in the city, we need to be building a monorail from the uh, airport downtown to the convention center and hotel cluster, a one single line that could be later expanded as necessity arises or as uh, you, you, the city continues right. to grow. I would also suggest linking something regarding Indianapolis region 
regional and Indianapolis International Airports. Now, moving moving that all aside, as, as much as I would love to excitedly tell you about things that I think would be cool, uh, I, I want to point out that building a rail line uh, across the continent of Africa and, or the and, ocean or the Pacific Ocean or and and not from like California to Hawaii, which is something stupid, but still just from one ocean to another ocean and then across the that just ocean. like from the over from the Pacific through the Indian Ocean. Excellent. Okay. Uh, those crazy and patently insane and impossible projects uh, should not be suggested before upgrading America's rail infrastructure. We can't even keep our interstate system at, at a decent level of repair. I mean, it's a complete mess. And, and besides that, the state roads and the county roads on more of a local level are a mess. But we're going to get out there and we're going to talk about how important it is, you know, between Kamala Harris's electric bus excitement and Joe Biden's wanting to build trains across oceans and Africa, which like, has anyone in Africa asked us to build a, a train there? Like, I, I mean, the last time I mean, that a nobody nation... Asked, nobody asked for the red line, but the city of Indianapolis was thrilled to get the $25 million in federal grant money. And similarly, I'm sure many countries in Africa, despite never having asked for a uh, you know, cross-continent railway, would well, be thrilled the, to have an injection of uh, overseas funding. The last time that uh, a nation accused, accused of being an imperialist power built a railroad across the continent, we got Mahatma Gandhi. So, like, I don't necessarily Good see... Parallel. Thanks. I, I don't necessarily see the financial here, but look, look at us. We're, we're approaching the situation logically when you and I both know that the president of the United States who told Maui fire victims that he understood their pain because he almost lost his Corvette in a house fire. And he and, given them a $700 payout, you know. And then also household. and then also in, a, in, a, in another press conference told people that he was at ground zero the day after 9-11, which is also false. If you're listening to President Biden and analyzing what he's saying logically, you're wasting your time. It, I, I listen to my toddler tell stories. Well, John, and Kurt, I don't take them seriously because you know she's a, a baby and cannot actually formulate stories. Well, John Kirby, uh, White House spokesman, had an explanation for that. Oh, for Biden, of course he does. You know, uh, misattributing the date. He said he merely attributed the visit earlier than what actually occurred. Got it. Why did he say that he was there the next day? Because he wasn't there the next day. Well, he went uh, about a week or so after the attacks with other members of Congress to see Ground Zero for himself and have a chance to talk and thank the first responders. He just attributed uh, the visit a little earlier uh, in the remarks than what had actually occurred. But he was there. He did go to Ground Zero. Okay, so he was just fabricating the timeline, not the actual visit. Thank goodness he, he did at least actually go to that one. That's called an exaggeration. So, uh, again, you know, we're going to get to the election next year, and President Biden, when he finally gets around to visiting East Palestine, Ohio, is is then going to run saying, I visited all the natural designs right after the derailment I was in East I Palestine. It's just an exaggeration. That's the same. Reminder, one of the reasons the Soviet Union collapsed is not because the Soviets lied about the Chernobyl nuclear accident, but because they exaggerated and under-exaggerated the extent of the mess, the loss of life, and the actions the government was taking to resolve that disaster. You do not exaggerate when it comes to disasters. That is one of the most egregious ways you can treat a disaster because you are using how you are framing the disaster for your gain and your gain alone. And how you frame a disaster is incredibly important because if it's done carelessly, it can easily make your administration appear like it is 
completely incompetent. For example, Kamala Harris boasting about the success of Biden's uh, uh, border policy as the uh, crossings had temporarily subsided to a still high but lower than Biden's all-time highs. And now that the numbers are uh, creeping back up, while Kamala Harris had formerly boasted about the Biden uh, uh, success, now she's saying that a Biden policy is completely unconnected with its rise in illegal crossings again. Here's what she was uh, asked by a reporter. So when the border crossings went down earlier in the summer, the administration said it was due to your policies working. Now they're going back up as they did in the month of August. Does that show the strategy is no longer working? Absolutely not. What it means is that we have to stay focused on a number of issues Ah. related to the irregular migration that, again, we're seeing around the world and America is not immune. You have to get out of denial. Absolutely I've had failure in my life. But one thing I'm not in is denial. Okay, no. so denial. I, 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 first of all, congratulations <laughs> on Vice President Harris for getting through a statement without giggling. Um, that's, you know, that's always a hoot. Uh, quick points, and I just want to ask this of, of the individuals in the room. Let's say that I was appointed someday, let's say next, next term, that, you know, someone at the White House decided to smoke crack, not Hunter Biden, and then they, they appointed me to either be the... Uh, the director of the U.S. Department of the Interior, that's currently Deb Holland, or Secretary of State, Mayorkas's position, and my responsibility was the border. Would you guys be offended? Wasn't Kamala Harris the border czar? Wasn't she? Wasn't that her job? Look, we'll talk about constitutional authority over that position. So forget like, oh, who's in charge of it? Like the Department of the Interior and then the Secretary of State have control over the border. One has control over the border itself. One has control over the twenty miles up to the border. So if I was appointed either of those positions, and I got up in front of the country on my very first day in office and said, okay, here's the deal. I don't know exactly what's going on at the border. I don't know exactly why there are so many people that are streaming through. I don't know why so many policies are discordant, but I can promise you this. I will. I am moving down there today, and I am going to try different things until we get this fixed. And you may not always like my answers, but I'm going to do my, I'm going to, to say the quote, do my damnedest in order to get out there and solve the problem. Would you think me incompetent? Or foolish or like a waste of your time for saying that. I'm honest question. I'm not looking for an answer here. What what would your response be if that I got up and said that? Cautiously optimistic. Okay. So why are we so obsessed with the ego of an individual to say they have everything under control and they clearly don't? Every average American would be so much happier. And I'm not talking about like what party you're a part of. Just admit you don't know what's going on. And yeah, everyone would love to see the border situation resolved, even Democrats, as shocking as that may sound. And and you know how important it is. You know how much trouble it's causing. You're going to get down there and you're going to solve this and you're going to work on it until it's solved. That's better than pretending it doesn't exist or whatever this flip-floppity pancake of a VP is doing. Well, evidently the Biden administration is leaning hard into the big lie because instead of uh, creating or demonstrating a success, they'll simply lie about it. It's been demonstrated with a number of policies. They claim victory in the uh, uh, the withdrawal from Afghanistan. They're doing a victory lack on Bidenomics of all things, saying the economy is just fine. Why wouldn't they do it over border policy too? I mean, again, I'm, I'm just putting myself into the shoes of, of the person that's running this kind of a situation here. And, you know, when looking at these kind of things, we have to start asking at what point we are going to start holding our leaders accountable like we would hold the average individual accountable. Up next, I guess we've we'll find got out in 2024. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Up next, we're going to be talking about some Indiana historical sites. There's also some other shenanigans afoot. You are not going to want to miss a second of it. I'm Tony Kennett. This is Ethan Hatcher bringing you Tony Katz today. 
Welcome back, Indianapolis. We're wrapping things up for hour two of Tony Katz today with Ethan Hatcher. That's me, your Saturday after a Saturday night host, a Saturday night on the circle. And Tony Kennett joining me. He's the investigative reporter for the Daily Signal, full of dashing and daring do. Ooh. Uh, this segment I wanted to cover um, why it's so important to protect your architectural heritage in the community. Once it's gone, you can't bring it back. And these are identifiers that single out and really make a, make a town feel like home. And I, 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 I'm going to push back just a little bit here. And I love, I love architectural heritage. And by the way, this is a pro-architectural heritage thing. But when you take a look at the mayor of, of Carmel, um, who is who's finally retiring... I, I don't know. He's he's built some really nice architectural spots in, in of stonework in the downtown. No, it's not like what was originally there, um, but it, it looks nice. You can restore architectural heritage, even some that may not have existed to an area. It's I'm, possible. I mean, I'm glad you mentioned Carmel because I look, I loved the fact that they were bringing in that historical carousel to their community at a cost of several millions of dollars. Was that more than 100 years old original structure? But that being said, is this something that needs to happen at taxpayer expense. Okay, hold on a second. You just said two different things. So you're talking about the importance of of maintaining architectural heritage, that if the building building is owned by the community, which often happens with a lot of those buildings, especially because of certain code restrictions, um, as you know more than anybody because of, you know, your your work in, in housing and development, then some of those kinds of upkeep are going to buy by consequence, be maintained by the community. Again, I'm for reducing uh, th- the taxes paid as well, but if you're going to maintain architectural heritage, well, if you're going to be a steward, like that, then it always needs to be done in a very educated and responsible way. Um, you know, not uh, and if that for was, for example, not if, all if educated aspects. and responsible was the norm, then we would not be here because <laughs> there would be nothing to report. True, uh, but that said, there are buildings under threat, according to Indiana landmarks across the state, that need attention, including some. Some of our historic fraternal lodges statewide, including the Odd Fellows, Masons, Elks, and other orders. A, that, a great example of this would be the Off the Hinge Antiques in uh, Brazil, Indiana, um, where they have they're built in an old Masonic lodge and sell their wares there. As right. as a former Freemason, and who actually has actually gone around mainly for architectural reasons and looked at a lot of the old Masonic lodges, I, I'm really amazed with some of these small communities how it was an investment from the Freemasons that actually built some of the beginnings of downtowns in a lot of these little historic downtown areas. I I think of Knightstown. The Masonic Lodge there is gorgeous. And even though it's not used for that anymore, those kind of historical buildings are absolutely breathtaking. Well, things like the Star Historic District of Richmond, which is still one of the best examples of 19th century architecture preserved in Indiana. So check it out, especially while time is left, and do your best to be a good steward and member of the community help preserve your architectural heritage and stay tuned to 93 WIBC Tony Katz today. Oh, got it all in there.